0: Hello and welcome to The Hive podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalina Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalinahigh.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this final episode of The Season, I speak with Tracy Follows a futurist and author of The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology? The CEO of FutureMade, a futures consultancy advising global brands and applying foresight to boost business, Tracy has appeared on BBC Business Matters, Radio 4, Talk Radio, and on the Megyn Kelly Show in the US. She's a contributor to The FT, The Guardian, and The Daily Mail, and she has her own contributor column in Forbes and also hosts The Future of You podcast. Tracy has spoken at UNHQ. She's keynoted at events such as the Financial Times Tech Live and Think with Google and has spoken alongside Silicon Valley CEOs at the FT's Global Boardroom as well as the UK government and parliamentarians at Think Digital Identity and delivering her TEDx talk at the UK Foreign and Commonwealth Office. She's covered topics as diverse as the future of luxury, retail, media, cities, gender, work, defense, justice, entertainment, and AI ethics, decoding what future trends might mean for business, brands, organizations, and beyond. I first met Tracy at a business event where we were both on a panel, and I was so struck by her incisiveness and ability to pull dots together to form cohesive potential future pictures that I simply couldn't resist. Having her for the final episode of this season. Grab yourself a cup of tea, strap yourself in, and I hope you enjoy the show. Tracy, it's a pleasure to be speaking with you after our recent crossing of paths in London. How are you doing today?
1: Um, thank you. It's lovely to see you again, Natalie, and to have a bit more of a conflab and a debate and <laughs> discussion with you. Always interesting.
0: Yeah, well, so you have one of the most interesting roles someone can have, which is your work as a futurist. For people who might not know
1: what a futurist is, can you tell us? Yes, what do I do? God, I'm constantly asking myself that most (laughs) days. Um, I am looking at different time horizons, I suppose. I think that's the simplest explanation of it. I'm not just observing what's happening in the present or indeed what's happened in the past, but also what could happen in the future. So it's not just about um, prediction, it's also about preparation. And what we are really spend most of our time doing is looking at alternative possible futures, all the different ways the future could possibly pan out. You know they have to be plausible futures, but they should also be alternative possible futures, not just the probable future that people have become um, used to and people kind of expect, because we're really trying to work out. Not necessarily just how to be right, but how not to be wrong. We don't want things to take us by surprise and find that we're not prepared for them. So especially with brands or or corporations and organisations, you spend a lot of your time, or I do, spend a lot of my time helping them to prepare for what could come next. And so
0: thinking about your role as conceiving the possible futures, not just the most likely ones that we might inhabit, and the forces that are shaping our collective destiny, Can you tell us about how you go about identifying trends and where you decide to focus your attention?
1: Yes. So uh, identifying trends is very—it's interesting you ask about that because there's an awful lot of trends content out there at the minute, and I think a lot of people think there's no point asking a trends expert or a futurist or a foresight practitioner about trends because all the trends are out there. You can just you know search anything on Google, and you'll receive that content. But of course, one of the expert ways. Um, To work with trends is to work out what's signal and what's noise. And so I spend a lot of my time not just trying to discover what the trends are, but trying to work out which are actually important and which aren't, I guess. And I think it's probably worth pointing out, I'm sure your audience are well aware of this, but it's always worth reminding ourselves that trends are not fads. They're not things that suddenly pop up out of nowhere. Trends are two different things, they're either an increase or a decrease in something whatever it is you're observing and so really they already exist and they're kind of always around but you're trying to pinpoint the things that are really going to increase not just marginally but with some impact over the next let's say 10 years or 20 years and also equally what things are going to decrease what things are going to start to disappear or move into the background for us as a culture or society or group or brand whatever it happens that you're working on and so I think it's a long long way of saying um, I spend a lot of time filtering out stuff rather than just trying to pursue, you know, content um, and look for things that are popping up that are new. That's not what I'm doing, really. Mm. I'm trying to work out and get rid of anything that's meaningless or feels like it's not that important and just find the signal. Um, and in order to do that, you have to look in some really different Interesting places. Mm -hmm. So, one of the things that I might say about that is that it's no point looking in the mainstream media. Well, I mean, you can look there, but those will (laughs) already be sort of trends that are most of the time quite obvious. And so, are they, you know, actually on the decline? Because by the time the mainstream media have kind of picked up on them and given it a label, and then everybody's talking about it, one might you know, suggest that (laughs) that it's no no longer something that's on the increase, it could be something that's on the decrease. And so I tend to look on the periphery, on the fringes, um, whether that's art or science or technology, or just trying to have a network of really interesting people who are much more interesting than me, doing innovative things and new initiatives and, you know, tapping into cultures or genres or groups that, I I am not involved with and, and wouldn't be. And so really, one can spend a lot of time looking at trends content, but actually, it always really comes from conversations that you have with real people in the real world. And that's how you get the best insights about trends, I think.
0: Oh, it's just so interesting.
1: And I think also, when
0: I've heard you talk, obviously now we're having this chat, but previously when we were at an event together, one of the things that really struck me was about how valuable being able to take a more considered intentional approach to thinking about trends um how useful that can be not just in the context in which professionally you operate so with brands and with companies and organizations but also more widely in society because this this is something that as you mentioned like once we get access to key ideas that have filtered through many mouths into mainstream media that are owned by various corporations with whatever agendas um as all systems most systems are, by the time we get to that point, it's already been filtered so much that we're not really accessing the signal. It's an echo or it's an amplification of something that has since changed, maybe. Mm,
1: That's an interesting way of thinking of it, yeah. Well, you can't
0: influence it by then. So one of my questions to you is, what's the role of the work that you do in cultivating a greater sense of possibility and imagination in the wider public? So not just brands and organisations, but how can you help pull on threads of potential futures that may be more regenerative than the one that we seem to be hurtling towards in order to give people a chance to think about a possible difference they could make or something that they could work towards that's not what we're,
1: uh, Mm. yeah, that's not on the books at the moment. Does that make sense? That isn't the probable future. Yeah. Yeah, because the probable future in some respects is already owned and sometimes already (laughs) commercialised. That's why it's the probable future because people tend to – circulate and then kind of recirculate trends so sometimes you you are hearing the same trends and because you're hearing those same trends you think that is the probable future it's only the probable future because it's been seeded in from certain forces to become a trend that's talked about so there is a uh, there is an element that is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy about mm. some trends you know um, and that 's an interesting thing that lots of people not me have uh, unpacked, but I think if I understand correctly what you 're really asking me is how do we make the future and the work of future studies and when we 're looking at possible futures more participatory yeah um yeah, I totally agree with that um when I looked at the future of identity, which is like a passion project of mine, I guess which i 've turned into something since I started it because i couldn 't see the public having any kind of discourse around the future of identity whatsoever i mean and, and every time it was you 'd hear it to use your words as an echo from mainstream media about group identity, mm. you know whether it 's racial politics gender politics it was it was framed in sort of group identity politics in a way and I was kept thinking yeah but what about our own personal identity (laughs) what's happening with this I can feel even as back far as like 2016 and then 2017 when I got my book deal so I was already thinking about the future of identity and the reasons for that I found it really difficult to kind of engage people in it like why is this an issue people were saying it's not really an issue is it it's just you know it's just the way things are now and i say, yeah but can't you see where this could <laughs> where this could go mm. we may lose our autonomy over our own identity and so i'd started to think about that and i found it very difficult and actually to be really honest with you i found it really difficult even now to engage the public if you like because my books written for the general reader to engage the public more in the notion of the future of identity, for example, mm-hmm. I find it really difficult. So, when one's doing a project, like I'm doing one on the future of education, or I'm doing another thing on like future of housing, social housing, you know, one can get groups together, one can mine them for their insights, their observation, their experiences. You can craft and design the project so that it is more bottom up than top down. Mm-hmm. But when you're just talking about any sort of subject matter in the future space, Sometimes it's an uphill struggle to get people to engage or the public to engage because they either don't see the value of it or it's just not at a pain point for them yet. Hmm. People will certainly engage when it's a pain point. Hmm. So interestingly, on the thing about identity, I massively engaged with it when I got chucked off Facebook and I couldn't re-log in. Then when I scanned my passport in to prove it was me, they came back and told me I wasn't me. And still, according to Facebook, I'm not Tracy Follows, you know, fine. (laughs) I'm in this kind of weird limbo land and um, something had happened with my account. But that was a pain point for me. That was a real experience that made me realise even more so that, hang on a minute, something about identity is changing. It's no longer my word on my identity. It's whether I'm machine readable. So if if that were to happen to enough people, you know, ordinary people, then that's going to become an issue. Mm. But not yet, really. So there aren't enough people engaged in that, for example. But there are a whole host of other issues that they're not engaged in either.
0: So let's talk about your book, The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive? 21st Century Technology. What are some of the key insights from that book that you think people need to know about in order to prepare themselves for potential struggles and to choose differently?
1: Well, each chapter tries to take a different uh angle on identity. So for example, the first chapter is about the legal aspects of identity, I guess, which is how are we going to authenticate or verify ourselves in the future? Or is somebody else going to do that for us? And if somebody else is going to do that for us, who is that? What is that process? <laughs> how much have we agreed to that process? And um, what are the pitfalls of it? So that would talk to my uh example of you yeah, know Facebook not um authenticating me or not seeing me as an authentic person. Then there are notions around as we're moving into a more automated world, as we've got new technologies, what will happen to the world of work, for example? And will we find ourselves working alongside non biological intelligences? Mm. And do those require personhood? Mm. So, you know, this this is lots of riffing off, I suppose, lots of David Gunkel's work and others about, you know, robot rights, et cetera. And there are ways to think about that that are not too science fiction-y, that actually are coming around the corner now and need to be addressed um, through policy or regulation or any any of these sorts of ways. And one of the interesting things is how that how the whole area of robots' rights and uh, AI has moved from ethical conversations into legal conversations because they're very practical matters now that mm. need dealing with. So there's that. There's the whole idea of how do we augment ourselves, um, which is speaking to transhumanism, um, well, whether we want to augment ourselves cognitively or in other physical ways, you know, with prosthetics, things like that. And obviously the two are connected. There's an exploration into genetics and how much are we going to be able to really create designer babies? You know, they're they're here already. And there is a whole chapter around, I guess, biosurveillance and the use of biological data to not only better understand ourselves, but to better design ourselves, as some people would think of it. So whether you want, you know... Uh, higher IQ for your child or whether you want them to be taller or to become a piano player. You know, I'm not saying we would do this in the UK right now, although maybe we will shortly who knows Mm. but there are other places in the world where obviously this is being done through um, pre-implantation processes and then you know all the way through really to I suppose it's cradle to grave in the sense that the last chapter deals with the digital afterlife (laughs) what happens to our identity after we are physically gone but we could potentially live on Digitally as data. So, I touch on lots of the sort of deepfake or voice deepfake work that's been going on for good or for bad. Um, talk about cryonics, so cryopreservation of the body, or just maybe just the mind, uh, mind uploading or downloading, all of these new technologies that I think are maybe 20 years away, wow. but have been worked on for the last 20 years. So, are not as far away, I don't think, as. As people might think, um, there's a lot of investment flowing into these areas, which is another clue to mm. another signal to whether we're on a trend or not, of course.
0: Do you not get absolutely terrified by some of the stuff that you're researching? <laughs> mm. <laughs> like, because I'm listening to this thinking, you know, and I'm, I'm an, I, I love um, sci fi, but I'm also not particularly optimistic about the progress of humanity's kind of moral compass, let's say, or at least the systems that we've created that permit more domination models of power to to thrive, it would seem, than other forms, whether it's explicit or implicit. So when you're doing this kind of research, how do you not
1: fall down into a dystopian rabbit hole? That's a good question. I mean, some days I do feel like Mm, this is quite dark and depressing. But then I remind myself that we still and always have options. Mm. So, for example, at the end of the book, you've just reminded me I'd forgotten about this. (laughs) At the end of the book, um, I do try and do like a scenario matrix of how could this pan out, Lots lots of these advancements. So it's just a small point, really. But if I just do a matrix with sort of the individual versus collective and authoritarian versus libertarian, I'll end up with four different quadrants with very different paths to the future in them. Um, And I do explore those a little bit at the end, but you could write a whole book or Mm. paper on that, really. And I guess it reminds me that it doesn't have to be all, you know, collective authoritarianism or, or whatever. It could be much more individual libertarianism. That has its own dangers, of course. And by scoping those out and investigating what the implications of each of those four are, at least one reminds oneself that there are always options Mm, mm. Um, and that the future is to be created, of course. I think what you're highlighting is who is creating that future? You know, who are the voices? Who are the paid voices? Mm. Who are the investors? You know, because they tend to create the future. And what gender are they, for example? That's been a problem in the past. But I think, you know, people have woken up to that enough and are trying to be more participatory we always have to remind ourselves that there are always options it's never just the probable future we have these other options so i guess i in working through scenarios and things like that you're always aware of other options even if they feel a little distant on one day rather than another Mm. and then you know One always has to, well, I I work on my own a lot, you know, and I I like that. But there are times when one needs to reconnect Mm. with other people and just check in with people and go, am I thinking about this right? Or is this as dark and depressing as it seems today? Um, And try and choose a diverse enough group of people that kind of bring you back to a reality so that you can feel that you you can cope with it. Hmm. I always say I'm a, I'm an optimist, but I'm an anxious optimist. That's, that's what I am.
0: Oh, I like that. Yeah. That's a really nice way of putting it. Very concise. So one of the things I think really comes up in my mind, at least when you're talking about that is the agency that we may or may not have in choosing how we respond to possible challenges and to creating futures that can be more beneficial to all of us and not just perhaps the tech bros or investors. I mean, that's the commercialization is another area that I'd love to dig into a little bit. But one of the things I know is hitting the mainstream more, which has taken what feels like an eternity to, to have conversations around, is the principle of privacy. What does it mean in different contexts? And one of the areas that you explore on your podcast, The Future of You, is digital identity and self-sovereignty, which are two concepts that are fascinating, and the possibility of a world in which we potentially control our own identity and get to decide what personal information we share and with whom, etc. So, can you tell us a little bit more about digital identity and self-sovereignty, and what you're seeing happening in that space? Like causes for hope and causes for concern.
1: Mm, okay. Now I'm going to try and explain this in a, in a really non-technical way because it is highly technical. When I started delving into it, I was like, I don't understand a thing about this. And every time I picked up a book or spoke to somebody who recommended a book, it was about a thousand pages long with lots of equations oh and and code in it. So, um, but I did, for example, interview Drummond Reed when I was researching the book, and latterly in the last few weeks, um, I interviewed Kalia Young, who is a real pioneer in this area of what we might call decentralized digital identity. So perhaps the best way to scope it out for people is to say, look, there are three, broadly, there are three frameworks one can follow for digital identity, a highly centralized model, a federated model, and a decentralized model. Now, you might say this centralized model is something like what operates in China, not quite the same, but Um, which kind of ends up sort of a social credit system. But there's a unique number that's attached to you as a person. And there are other things that are attached, like either more data and your behaviour and all those sorts of things. And so that can be monitored centrally by a government or by a local authority, for example. Uh, There's a similar system in India, which is Aadhaar, where... There is a biometric held on you, which is created and aligned to a unique identifier. And that's controlled by the government. So these are centralized systems, which are very governed by a central authority, which is it which is the government. Mm-hmm. Um, then there are sort of federated systems, which are kind of a blend, I guess, between centralized and decentralized you kind of have these um, networks where it's a bit like in the UK where if you want to go and open a bank account you can take in a utility bill Mm. behind the scenes there's like a network saying you know this is the proof of this person because it's connected to this other proof this person has but it makes it quite difficult to cross over private and public so if the government knows lots about you because you're on welfare it might not necessarily know that much about you through you know organizations that you have too much to do. So it's got a complex system and difficult to administrate. Then there's this decentralized system, which is in the offing, I'd say. It's not here yet, but plenty of people are working on it and it manifests in lots and lots of different ways. So Often when I'm talking about decentralized digital identity or Web3 type identity, there's lots of different ways that we could cut this cake. Um, but one of the interesting ways is through verifiable credentials. And the idea of verifiable credentials is that you carry what you have with you digitally, a set of credentials that verify certain things about you in the same way that you would carry around a physical wallet mm-hmm. that has Inside it, verifications about certain things about you, certain attributes. You've got your driving license or you've got, um, you know, a a key card or a pass to your office, whatever it might be. And what the people working in this area are trying to do is to recreate all of that digitally. And they want to do it in a way that's going to enhance privacy protection. Mm. Not diminish it. And so the idea is that you have these verifiable credentials, and if there's an institution that needs to know something about you, it puts in a proof request, and that proof request is met with a proof response. And when those match, let's say it's through a private and public key, because it's through cryptographic technology that these two things exist and can be matched, then then the system is told that, yes, you are over 18, so you can go and buy the alcohol, or yes, you do have a pass to give you access to this event, or yes, that's correct, you did get a a Master of Science at Manchester University or whatever, and do hold that qualification. What it does is allow us to not present lots of personal information that we don't need to present to people who we don't know. So if I go into a shop and um, have to prove that I'm over 18 (laughs) uh, to buy alcohol, I'm going to show them my driving license, which has got my date of birth on it, my residential address. Mm. I mean, because people are used to it, they don't really take too much notice about the amount of personal data that they're sharing with somebody they know nothing about. That's true. Just a cashier behind a till, for example. With this, when the private and public key kind of match and the cryptographic technology works, really, you're not sharing your identity. You're certainly not sharing any extraneous information that they they don't need. You're just saying, this match verifies that you are over 18. You aren't even necessarily saying how old you are or who you are. So it's it's making the attributes of you in a digital world work so that they can be shared on a on a need-to-know basis, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And I'm aware that that's kind of a long-winded way and perhaps a quite complex way of explaining it, but that's the hope. The, the technologies that underpin it, some of it is going to be delivered through blockchain, doesn't necessarily have to be. Uh, there are conversations about dids now, digital identifiers, and how those with the verifiable credentials become the twin pillars of a mm. decentralized way of uh, organizing a digital identity system. It just means that one has more control over one's, as you say, more autonomy over one's own personal data and who that's shared with and when.
0: Mm. I wonder if we're going to start seeing, uh, I suspect this might be inevitable. I don't want to say inevitable, the I word to a mm. futurologist. But I I I've, I get the creeping feeling that it's it's going to be pretty hard not to end up in a situation where certain countries are a lot more protective of citizens' privacy than others. And we're already seeing huge discrepancies between certain countries already now in terms of how people are tracked and surveyed. And then I think also the honesty with which that is done. So... You know, in the UK, there's a lot of tracking, people who've given information. I remember there was that NHS for with data being shared mm-hmm. and only people who'd been reading the warning signs, basically people who are connected with the tech industry in some form, were even aware of what was happening. So there wasn't even that level of clarity. That's right. What do you think is within our capacity to do when, obviously, the countries or systems, let's maybe talk about the UK, so the government, if they can monetize the data, chances are they will because that's what the previous evidence suggests, by and large. So if we're living in the UK, for instance, and there's a government who is ostensibly democratically elected, that's another big tin of worms, and we like our sense of individualism because we're on an island and there's a cultural dynamics attached to that, and yet we know that the government's more likely to go for a a system where they acquire more power and wealth, what can we do? How do we get this conversation out there? There are so many different vested interests that might be running against that example
1: of decentralised information sharing that you just described so beautifully. Mm. Well, the government in the UK have operated, uh, up until now, a federated system. It was called Verify. And all of the advancements and the innovation they tried to build on the top of that were pretty disastrous. Mm. They just couldn't make it work um, technologically for reasons I won't bore you with. But that's now sort of been... um, as far as I can work out, there are, there are two things going on. There's the emergence of a one login kind of digital identity now for you to access government services, which makes sense because, you know, if you're at welfare or you're doing your tax or you've got a corporation, whatever it is, one has to use the gateway service anyway. I use that all the time. But separately to that, there is uh, a trust framework that's been developed by the government now, which is allows for the emergence of digital identity apps Mm -hmm. and commercial applications, really, to deliver digital identity. So this is more aligned with the decentralized version of events. So the trust framework will allow for a plethora of bodies, whether private or public, to operate technology solutions which allow users or consumers to upload their digital identity and use these apps to to prove who they are. And it does kind of work on the cryptographic technology that I've do, I was just outlining. Hmm. And there's lots of kind of big players like Yoti, for example, where I've got my passport stored and they uh, they've partnered with the post office now and I think they're either also doing age verification in supermarkets for buying alcohol and I think I don't know that they're involved but I think yes I think they are involved in that kind of cinema access now for digital identity so yeah. it's building up this massive network of multiple players where you as the user can choose which app you want to use for what purpose and you can prove your digital identity through this decentralized system but of course course you need to have a trust framework you need to know that each of these providers are working to certain accreditation Mm. if you like that they can be trusted Mm. and so that's what the government are trying to put in place and that's what the framework is whether this is going to work or not is yet to be seen Uh, whether there is a creeping sort of re-centralization within these uh, systems because to your earlier point what could stop the web 3 or the decentralized Version of digital identity actually coming to fruition is the um, regaining of centralized control by the Web two world, if you like. So we've already seen with Apple, for example, they're going to be delivering mobile driving license ID um, in the US, and that's important because Apple is a walled garden in the same way that you know the Google services are or the Amazon platform and all of its tentacles. Once you're in it, you're in their system. So. I don't think people quite know how this is going to pan out yet. But what we could see is a kind of clawing back of control into the sort of web to commercial world where we end up with Facebook, Amazon, Google and Apple actually running our digital ID systems because that's what makes it more convenient and frictionless. Because hmm. to, your, to your point you made about this earlier. People want convenience and they seem to want convenience over everything else and that's why they're not as engaged in privacy and that's why they're not that bothered about it until something bad happens because really to make your life runs smoothly you need the convenience of these these platform providers um because you just can't do it all yourself mm. people are busy they have families and jobs and lives to lead and um and and this is one of the dangers or the threats so that I, I think the whole industry are very much awake to but it is one of one of the um threats to delivering a fully decentralized solution and actually it kind of becoming either a, a hybrid or or back to a centralized system mm. but actually not run by governments <laughs> run by a commercial Operators.
0: So let's talk a little bit about the commercialization of the future because that puts a chill up my spine. And I think, well, obviously, I think we all have different perspectives on this. But one of the issues that I've been trying to unpick in various ways in these conversations is how do we find a more sustainable or regenerative way to consume what we need to, but also reduce the needless materialism and consumerism, which has adverse impacts on well being, on mental health, on obviously the planet and the living web of life. What are some of your thoughts about the inevitability of a commercialized future where everything is optimized, data, et cetera, to create financial value for specific bodies, companies, organizations? Do you see an alternative path forward that is much more distributive, less commercial, more oriented towards um it could be anything from, like, reforestation to greater sort of citizenship participation, whatever it might be. But things that are less focused simply on making money, consuming, et cetera, and more on quality of life relationships, the intangibles that cannot easily be monetized.
1: Mm. I think the problem that we've got is that it's really a corporatist future that we're heading towards at the minute, which is it's not just commercial organizations are running lots of these services and providing us with the day to day amenities, and therefore we are beholden to them and their terms of service. It's that the governments of the nation states uh, uh, are aligned with them because what we've got is a weird situation where we've got technology platforms who have so much power now that they're becoming like nation states, mm. and we've got nation states who can see that they can only control their populations by becoming technology platforms. So what we actually have is like an unholy alliance between the two. So I always see it as a triangle in each of the three corners. You know, you've got the government and policy, then you've got commercial and private enterprise, then you've got the consumer or the user. And unfortunately, two of those corners are now now very, very aligned with um, the governments and the nation states realizing that The successful state of the future is a technological state. So they need these commercial operators who who have the platforms and have huge amounts, what, 3 billion users on, we don't know that they're all active, but 3 billion users on Facebook. That's a lot more powerful than, you know, 70 million people in the UK. You know, when it comes to an election, who needs who more? (laughs) Mm. I think we've seen the answer to that. And so we do have this alliance now and it's squeezing out the rights and the civil liberties, I would say, of the consumer or the user. So we need to break those two apart again. Um, It's going to be very, very difficult to do because they're becoming so intertwined. And me just explaining what's happening with the trust framework, of course, is another way that they are becoming more and more entwined. So the danger is that we're going to have a system where the government want the populace to behave in a certain way, but it's it would be exceeding their powers to either suggest or enforce that, but they're going to potentially use the commercial power of the tech platforms to achieve it. Honestly, we saw it in Canada. We saw it when the truckers were demonstrating against what I think is their human right over bodily autonomy. Why should they be mandated a vaccine that half of them don't even need? Um, Maybe all of them don't even need, we don't know. But it is certainly their right to make their own decision. Mm. When they were told that that wasn't their right, they had to have a form of protest. Their form of protest wasn't violent no matter what, people read as headlines in the media. It wasn't. It was good natured for the most part. And the government came down on them like a ton of bricks, started labeling them as racists, bizarrely. But the even more worrying thing was that, you know, the community funding through GoFundMe and other platforms like that was shut down, you know, and that says everything. That's a really big signal to, okay, you've got the wrong opinion, or you think you can protest against you know the powers that be, you haven't, because we're going to confiscate your monthly salary, you know, or we're going to stop any funding being collated or collected from your community. So the more we get into these digital worlds, obviously, the more power we are handing over to um, not only those platforms, but to the state, I think. And To answer your question, I don't know the way out of it. I just Mm. know that more and more people are waking up to it and are kind of, I think, hedging their bets. So there's a lot of what we might call social cooling going on at the minute where Mm. people are stepping away from social networks and um, social platforms and recreating their own conversations in public spaces where they feel they're in a more trusted group Mm. and they'll get uh, a more honest opinion about, what's going on in reality really because one of the dangers is what's circulating in social media all the time is complete fiction Mm. you know it's so decoupled from what's going on in reality and people are just buying into these narratives and also those narratives a lot of them are coming from the government and then they're perpetuated through these social platforms depends what side of the aisle you're on politically Mm. Um, but one can never believe what's a trending topic is that a trending topic because it's trending because people are interested in it or is it a trending topic because you'd like me to think people are interested in it and therefore i need to believe this and be interested in and activate this or push out this hashtag or Um, you know, take issue with this other group of people. So all of that's going on. It can't go on with just the government or just the commercial enterprises. It can happen, though, brutally with when the two are combined and aligned. I just think more people are kind of recognizing it. The more people who recognize that We've got narratives spewing out of the media that have no relation whatsoever to reality. The more people are kind of going back to reality by recreating their own spaces and community in the physical world.
0: Wow. I mean, it's interesting. I, I sometimes find myself questioning whether I'm a bit of a Luddite. I mean, I, I do love using technology. And when the first platforms came out, MySpace, I remember back in the day, You know, there was there was such a sense of possibility and excitement and there was a lot of creativity. And then, of course, eventually... Um, certain structures crystallise, power amasses in certain areas, and then the territory consolidates in a way that maybe the majority of people may not have wanted it to. But I think hearing you talk about that as well and the, the desire to, and I like your language here, go back to reality and meet with people in person, especially if, and we haven't even touched on the climate crisis, but especially if we're going to have any hope of dealing with the entangled mess that are the various crises we have Present in our laps and on the horizon. We're going to need to be able to have deeper conversations to tolerate difference and discussion where it's uncomfortable, to be able to lean towards growth and compassion. And none of that is really facilitated by our current systems of social exchange. uh, And I'm thinking here specifically, you know, the digital forums. But I'm also encouraged by the fact that with my head tilted in a different direction. There's a really interesting movement that is starting to burgeon under the broad umbrella of regenerative culture, whether we're thinking about giving greater amplification to previously suppressed indigenous voices or people who have been ousted from positions of power, whether for, well, for any kind of reason, for their gender, their sex, their ethnicity, neurodiversity, ability, any kind of difference that you might like to put in that gap, of which there are many, um, but there does seem to be some sort of desire for a completely different system to emerge. And I'm wondering if this is something that is cropping up on your radar and maybe what you think about that that concept, that people meeting in analogue, wanting to join the dots in a different way, thinking more about getting back into physical relationship with one another offline, with food, with animals, with ecosystems. Like I'm throwing a lot at you here, but... um. Yeah, pick any any place to start,
1: really. Yeah, I do think there there is that um that is happening. I think it's actually happening with Gen Z as well. I mean, I know you do a lot of work with Gen Z. And when I was first talking about this, I was talking about reconnecting with nature. But, of course, as somebody pointed out to me, they're not reconnecting with nature. They're connecting with the nature because they are not been connected to it in the first place. Huh. I thought, oh, yes, I'm talking from my own point of view, you know, because when I came, when I was a lot younger, um, you know, and I'd go out to play. My mum and dad didn't know where I was because yeah. I didn't have a phone, yeah. obviously, and I was just told, you know, be back at 10 o'clock or whatever off I go on my bike we go playing in the fields whatever (laughs) nobody knew where I was you know and you now think about that and how parents are today and you think my god that would be terrifying for a lot Mm. lots of parents because their children have grown up in a world where they're always connected through devices or whatever but they're always connected either to content or each other so one always has like a kind of soft surveillance yeah. kind of guy going on and probably Archangel, um, the Black Mirror episode is probably the best articulation of the pros and cons of that. But I remember that how much freedom we had. Mm. And I think the same about the car as well. You know, how much freedom it was when you got your first car and learned to drive, you could literally go anywhere. Mm. Oh my God, <laughs> that was just so liberating. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so I think people are, trying to look for these they're escapes right yeah, they're escapes yeah. to either find oneself or find one's actual reality not the reality one's being like told all the time through the uh through the data one sees all the time coming through digital platforms or through a zoom lens or on a some sort of forum or, or news feed um and I, th- and I think that's what's going on but for for a new generation it is for them, it's a first because they grew up as digital natives, and so they were always highly connected. Mm. And so it's it's not a, a rediscovery; it's a discovery of this, and it must be quite exciting. So, even a year ago, I was talking to some some people who were doing lots of research with Gen Z, and they were saying it is all about getting back to nature, hearing birdsong, mm. you know, going into the woods and just like escaping from all the noise um and I was talking to somebody the other day I was interviewing for my podcast who when I asked him what his hope would be for sort of identity in the future he was saying just to leave our identity behind for a minute to like disconnect from our identity for a bit you know have Some time off from it, you know, trying to be this person or that person, whatever. In the, I know we've talked about this before in in this sort of age of profilicity Mm. where we're always profiled and we're always presenting ourselves as a profile. So I think that's, I think that's what's happening. How you can scale that up, or whether you can or not, I I, I don't really know because it's so disconnected from sort of jobs and livelihoods and the economy. But I think there is definitely that feeling that getting to or getting back to nature is important. I feel that. It's going to be less and less possible if we take some of the tools I've just been suggesting, old-fashioned tools like cars, uh, if we take them away. So one of the things that concerns me is – and it's couched in sort of regenerative language, for Hmm. example, but the 15-minute city Mm -hmm. or whatever – To me, that's horrifying. Interesting. Say more. (laughs) I want to get out, you know. I don't want somebody putting a geolocation on me because that's not regenerative. That's just going back to sort of techno-authoritarianism again. Um, And so I feel like a lot of the things you are quite rightly talking about have already been co-opted and it's kind of, you know, turned around on us and there's a bit of a double speak. It's nice to have a 15-minute city that you Mm. could walk around and, and get all your provisions and see the people you want. But I certainly don't want to be told that that's, that's the limit of my boundaries. I don't want to be told I can only get on a plane twice a year because we've all got to cut down. I mean, I actually don't go very many places, but it's the notion of being dictated to mm. that I can only behave in so many ways when I've had all the freedoms I have had you know, growing up. And what worries me is that whether it's couched in the terms of regeneration or not – the next two or two generations maybe three are going to have all of their possibilities and aspirations limited because somebody somewhere has has decided that no no you can't do that you can't travel you know, beyond this 15-minute horizon. You can't uh, go on a plane to the other side of the world more than twice a year. You know, I think this is the danger. There is a lot of things, a lot of limitations being placed on us and sold to us under the banner of sustainability. And I'm not really sure it's tackling the right people (laughs) or the right pollutants or the right uh, processes. And it feels to me like a lot of it is being used as an excuse to control populations. That is so fascinating
0: and um, you just cracked open a whole bunch of questions in my mind. I think especially this this question of who is being limited and why and who isn't being limited and why. And especially when you start to, and this comes back to what you were discussing earlier, this, this sense that if you want to find out where the possibility is to reach out to people with a diversity of experiences and understanding, which is something that you build into your practice. And I think here as well, it's, it's very easy to kind of fall into the trap of thinking, okay, the prevailing trends around not traveling, going vegan, um, Mm. I'm just listing two that are at the top of my mind, but any of these, which do include some really great intention, but I think they're not black and white. And the danger is, of course, as with any movement that starts to gain its momentum, the tendency can be to follow that momentum unthinkingly or without considering the best arguments of your opponents and really living with those arguments and go, okay, actually, do they have a point?
1: But, I mean, people aren't blind. They can see that some of the same billionaires who are talking about, you know, the oceans and the erosion, you know, quite rightly, are also buying coastal properties, Um, that the people who are wanting to limit the number of flights we take are still travelling on a private jet every other day. Mm -hmm. You know, the transfer of the wealth from the poorest in society to the already most wealthy in society has been phenomenal through the last decade but particularly through covid through the ukraine crisis you know there's a lot of money laundering going on and even through lots of the green agenda money is being passed from the poorest to the richest and more investigation around that whatever one thinks of the green agenda the net zero agenda whether we think we're approaching it in the right way or not one cannot be blind to the the fact of the matter, which is that a lot of wealth is moving upwards and not being redistributed downwards. Mm-hmm. And there's something very wrong about that. Mm. And before, because
0: I know that we're coming to the end of this conversation, I mean, I just want to keep you on here for hours, but one of the things I absolutely have to ask you about, which looks set to have massive implications on our species. And future generations is that of neurotechnology and neuro Oh yes,
1: great. Yes. Can we please have a
0: little <laughs> chat about that before we go? Also, what is neurotechnology or neurotechnologies and what are neuro rights and why does it matter?
1: Gosh, Natalie, you probably have a better definition than me on neurotechnology. <laughs> no, I
0: really don't. I wish I did.
1: <laughs> I don't really know what the definition is, but all I do know is I've been looking a lot, I'm quite obsessed with this at the minute, as, as something that's coming at us and being um, heavily invested in, which is obviously the integration of technology with our cognitive functions through the brain. Everybody knows about Elon Musk's Neuralink, mm-hmm. about you know the ability to you know, lace in these little electrodes that will pick up your neurological impulses and be able to divert your thoughts to a device. So we'll be able to thought control. I don't know, thought control your vacuum. Thought control a prosthetic limb, which Mm. is obviously, it's in this sort of restoration agenda that lots of these advancements are being presented to us. So people who've lost limbs or have, you know, suffered from Parkinson's, et cetera, which is about restoring functions that we now miss, that we, we once had. But very soon it will be moving into augmentation, not just restoration. So we'll want to improve our IQ, store some memories, download some music straight to our brain, or the thing I'm quite interested in, which is the brain to brain to use your title the hive mind (laughs) oh god we're going Borg (laughs) yes of course of course aren't we all um uh, this collective consciousness where I see lots of um I've written about this before lots of interesting applications for the creative industries where we can link up our brains and share ideas brain to brain rather than having to write them on paper or draw them out or whatever that could be Really exciting, but also incredibly terrifying. Because, like you, if we're not able to focus our thoughts, how on it's going to be a shit show? <laughs> yes, or it could be a way of merging all the very best thoughts together. So, do your your point right at the beginning about a participatory future: what if everybody was participating through their connected brain functions into ideation about what a certain future could be
0: absolutely terrifies
1: me (laughs) I'm not totally sold on it because as you know I am one who wants to preserve myself sovereignty and personal identity but I do see this coming down the line and I think if you look at Things that are going on with Neuralink, but also with BlackRock. Um, you know, there's a lot of money pouring into it, and there's a reason for that. Mm, follow the money. It's it's absolutely bonkers.
0: I was reading a little bit on it was a UNESCO link talking about Chile and their, Yeah, I don't know if it's passed. Do you know if it's passed the the rulings?
1: No, they were trying to they were trying to pass it. I don't know. This is the bill they were trying to get through Parliament. I know we've touched on it before, but. I want to get to the bottom of this because I loved the language they were using around it. Um, and it was around the protection of personal identity yes. and memories and the modification of our thoughts and memories. Mm-hmm. And if that is passing through a parliament um, or is even being discussed at a policy level, I think that points that's another signal that points to neurotech is coming and therefore... As with everything, to a trend, there's always a counter-trend, and the counter-trend will be the emergence and the need for neuro-rights. So what are the rights that are going to protect us from a technology that could be implanted within us but that we don't actually own? So how much of the self are we not going to own in the future? And that's really why I was saying, can your identity survive the 21st century technology? Because that's the pivotal point, really. It's horrifying. I actually want to be dead before that happens. No, we're going to cryonically preserve you. You can come back. (laughs) No, no, I'm not
0: coming back. I am not coming back. If reincarnation is such a thing, as beautiful as this earth is, it's also terrifying. Um... I think, beautiful and terrifying, probably in equal measure. Just extraordinary. The other thing that I was reading in this same article was talking about applications, so neurotechnological applications that could be hacked commercially to contain neurocookies that would allow people to identify a consumer's preferences and implant new ones. Hell no, I'm not sticking around for that. I mean, that's just... I can imagine jewels. well, in a sort of... Worst case scenario, well, maybe not worst case scenario. Worst case scenario is everyone is co-opted without any consent Mm. and you do it
1: from birth. Mm. Oh, I don't even want to think about that. Um, Well, of course, dreamvertising has been something that's been worked on for years, you know, how we can implant the messages or even remove, you know, as you say, important data in the mind, cognitive data, whilst you're dreaming um, so it can be (sighs) commercialised. Well, one no. I don't know. Well, it depends how convenient it is, of course. What's the exchange? What's the value exchange? What do I get in return for that? You know, there might be some things that people say, well, I'm only sleeping. It's not bothering me. So if they want to implant oh, a couple course. of, you know, Coca-Cola uh, branded messages in my brain so that next time I feel like I need a drink, I'm driven to that particular brand rather than Pepsi, then people might put up with it, you know. That's
0: absolutely horrifying. I'm. I'm wondering if we're going to end up with these <laughs> weird factions where there's going to be like humans that are the Luddite humans. Yes, we gonna... are. But the thing is, also we we don't want to end up. I don't want to end up in a situation where I'm not able to use the, the technological stuff that helps me. Like this podcast, we're doing it. We're, we're not in the same place. We haven't had to fly to reach one another. Mm. We're able to if we want to. But to have the choice to be able to create in easeful ways or with other people or, Mm. you know, I got my eyes lasered. Did you? That's been amazing Amazing. relief. And that was, yeah, it was machine-based. Like, all of these adaptations which we're already benefiting from, I'm not anti-technology, but I am anti-dehumanisation technologies. And I think this is what these things have the potential to become, so you mm-hmm. won't be signing up to Worldcoin then. Hell no! Well, hang on, and that's another. Co- but we're coming to time. I've got a few questions to ask you. We're gonna have to. We're gonna have to <laughs> kick yes, off the next it. season with another one of these conversations. Do
1: a lightning round. <laughs>
0: yeah, lightning round. <laughs> one which I would love to know: is there a story, or a poem, or a quote, or a myth that most captures your imagination or inspires you?
1: do You know, I don't know if there, I mean there, there are. Um, I'll have that. What do they call it um, esprit d'escalier in a minute <laughs> yeah. where you you think of the thing after the thing is finished. Um, I always have that, and my brain doesn't work <laughs> quick enough anymore. I need to augment it. I tell you what I do always end up going back to is uh, Albert Camus' l'étranger, which is a story, of course, but, but, but a book, um, which I first came across when I was doing my French A level. We had to read it in French and Okay, I was at that age <laughs> where existentialism is very appealing, you know. Um, but it's all, of course, about the absurd, just the absurd. And I think you asked me earlier about how do you deal with things or stop oneself from feeling too dark and despondent or, and at least have some hope. I try to just remember it's absurd. You know, so much of what's going on in the world at the minute is utterly absurd, <laughs> Um at an existential level, that I suppose it's that. And that's that's the book that put me on track to go and study philosophy, actually. And then I ended up studying technology. And, and actually, it's all come, kind of come around to sort of philosophy mm. and technology and society and identity, mm. which is obviously existential. Um, and I suppose it's it's Camus' book, L'Etranger, The Outsider, uh, partly because that's what I always feel I am. That's what I've always been, in a way, uh, an outsider looking in. I'm not very good in... Clubs. I'm not a clubby person, which I've discovered over time. I'm just, I'm not a groupthink person. I tend to be the person who will make themselves unpopular by saying, Yeah, but hang on a minute. And then pointing out what I feel is obvious that nobody else can see. Mm-hmm. And I'm not saying I'm right. I'm just saying I'm always like, I <laughs> seem to have <laughs> a, a contradictory point of view. Um, so I think it's probably, yeah, Le changer, the outsider. Wonderful. That's probably. Probably it. (laughs) I'm going to include a
0: link to that in the show notes in case people want to dive down that particular path. So before we close, the final question. When it comes to possible futures, signals, interventions or innovations that are on the very edge of believability, is there something that you've noticed that's piqued your interest that really captures your imagination?
1: I'm really intrigued as to the return to intuition away from analysis. I can feel it within myself anyway, but I'm seeing it through friends and contacts and um, and now I'm noticing it everywhere. And this idea that time might not be linear and traveling in one direction. So if quantum breaks this all apart and we find that retrocausation is a thing, i.e. time can travel backwards, so what I'm doing now isn't going to cause what I then do in the afternoon. But actually, the stuff I'm going to do in the afternoon causes what I do now. I'm absolutely intrigued in that about that. And it is on the edges of believability. Because even when I say it to people, they're like, what the hell? <laughs> I wrote something for somebody about a very small paragraph and they were like, Mm, it was about imagination. Was like, mm, could you define this and could you define that? I was like, well, no, I can't actually because I don't really know what it is yet. I just know it's emerging, and I know that there's something interesting. It's probably going to come through quantum, a quantum breakthrough, and I think it's a return to the notion that we have precognition that we can. I would say this is a futurist. Maybe, maybe that's why I'm most interested in it. But we can see some glimpses of the future in the Mm -hmm. present and not just because we create the future from the present or the past because there is something traveling to us in the present from the future Mm -hmm. I'm sure that's made me sound completely mad and everybody's Mm -hmm. turned off now but that's okay (laughs) (laughs) no well because you know there's there's um
0: my, my dad uh taught me physics at a level and my brother went into physics and when you sort of hear people talk about things at the tiniest level of energy and matter, it gets super, super weird. And I know that there are some interesting mythologies around time being cyclic. I don't know if you've seen The the Wheel of Time, which is based on a book. There's also indigenous cultures that don't see time as linear. Exactly. Um,
1: time is a flat circle.
0: Yeah. So I think you don't sound crazy to me So I mean, it sounds, it just sounds really intriguing and so different to what we experience in our lives in Western cultures. And I think that the cultural container or frame that we bring to make meaning of our lived experience has a huge bearing on how we actually interpret the chronology of our lives. And so, yeah, no, I think that's a super interesting idea to play with. As a just a very practical question to finish on. If, as I'm sure people will, people want to find out more about you, what's the
1: best place to find you? Probably tracyfollows.com, which is where I keep my my blog and do my newsletters and post up all my podcasts for the future of you. And then for people who are interested in futures consulting, it's futuremade.consulting, which is the kind of more professional, less mad, uh, <laughs> uh, less pre-cog version of what I do. And um, yeah, and check out the book and check out the podcast. But I, you can always email me um, and my email address is on either of those websites. I always like to hear from people and what their ideas are. In a sort of participatory futures (laughs) approach.
0: (laughs) Brilliant. Tracy, it has been such a good final episode to end the season on. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, thank you for having me, Natalie. It's been a privilege to be on. Thank you.
0: Well, folks, that's a wrap. I've really, really loved putting this season together and I hope you found our intrepid exploration into how we might envision and create a more flourishing future for all as uplifting and perhaps at times as mind-bending as I have. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please do pop over to iTunes, Spotify or wherever it is that you listen and leave a rating and a review. It really means the world to me to read your support and it keeps me going to create more seasons. Speaking of which, the Hive podcast will be back in the autumn with another set of stimulating conversations for you to dive into. In the meantime, if you'd like to find out more, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahai.com. You can explore additional books and resources at natalinahai.com forward slash resources, or you can follow me on Twitter and LinkedIn at natalienahai. As always, my heartfelt thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you very much for listening and I look forward to sharing more with you in the next season.